John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside weeping at the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. People come to Easter Sunday worship services for a variety of reasons. Some come merely out of tradition. Some come because of family pressure. Um, Some come on this particular Easter Sunday because you just wanted to be around people this Easter since you had to stay at home last Easter. It's really great for me to actually preach to flesh and blood human beings this year as opposed to last year. Glad you're here. But there are a good many of us who gather for Easter Sunday worship because we believe that the recently crucified body of a Jewish rabbi resurrected the third morning after his death. And to some of you, that sounds absurd. And it's, it's okay. I want you to know, first of all, I'm not going to out you, make you raise your hand, or come up here and prove to us who you are. I've just done this long enough to know that you are out there. And let me try to put you at ease a little bit by letting you know you're not alone. You're not alone in this room thinking all of this sounds crazy. You're not even alone in the text. Every one of the biblical accounts of Christ's resurrection communicates to us clearly that everyone in the world expected there to be a body in that tomb on that day. The Roman leadership 
who had actually crucified Jesus expected there to be a body. The Jewish leadership that had instigated it all expected there to be a body. And most importantly, those who loved Jesus the most, his closest followers, expected there to be a body. And for me, the fact that no one expected it and then was all in for the rest of their lives on it makes it more believable to me. John 20 opens up with the thought that a person named Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb that morning, again, expecting a body. She had gone there to complete the embalming process because Jesus died in the afternoon of Friday, just hours before the beginning of the Sabbath. They had to do everything hurriedly so that they could beat sundown, and the first time that she had an opportunity to go back and complete this process was the Sunday morning after the Sabbath. And so she's on her way there to embalm this body, but when she gets there, she finds that the tomb that she had expected to hold the body of Jesus was empty. There's this call-response thing that churches do on Easter Sunday. We've already done it once. The leaders say, He is risen, and everybody replies... And everybody thinks, well, of course, of course, it's Easter. We're supposed to say that. And, and there's an expectation because we're so comfortable with the, with the narrative of everything to think that, well, you know, everybody knew as soon as they saw the empty tomb that Jesus had resurrected. But that's not what they think at all. No one naturally assumes that Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, Mary jumps to a very understandable conclusion Mary jumps to the conclusion that Jesus' grave had been robbed. The body of the Lord had been stolen. Grave robbing was rampant in the first century. In fact, it got so carried away that a few years later, the next Roman emperor, Claudius, made it a capital offense to rob a grave, to even disturb a gravestone. So Mary is assuming a common explanation that the body of Jesus has been stolen by robbers and she's distraught. And so she runs to the closest followers of Jesus, his students, known as the disciples, and communicates to them what she has discovered. Well, as soon as two of them hear it, they have to check it out for themselves. One of them is Peter. Now, if you're familiar with the, the narrative of the crucifixion, you know Peter had been an, a, a complete coward the night of Christ's crucifixion. He had denied that he even knew who Jesus was three different times. But he's still viewed as the leader of this group of closest followers, and so he sets out to check this out for himself. And then we're told somebody else goes with him, and he's identified only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we believe that that was John. So you have these two people, and they're racing together. But here's the thing. John was the youngest of the disciples. So you have Peter huffing and puffing. <laughs> and John just goes cooking right past him. And he gets there to the tomb first. And when he gets to the mouth of the tomb, he stops. Because, again, remember... He was expecting to find a robbed grave, and what he saw were the grave clothes lying there. Grave robbers take everything. They don't leave anything behind. The cloths were there. Now, it is possible linguistically in the language in which John originally wrote this 
that he actually sees more than just the grave cloths. The, the words can work naturally that the grave cloths had sunken in from the weight of the spices like an empty shell. They had collapsed, the body of Jesus passing through, as the body of Jesus is seen later, passing through walls and entering into the room. Whatever is the case, John showed up expecting to see a robbed grave, and he saw every indication that that wasn't the case. And then we are told that Peter arrives, and true to form in Scripture, he rushes right past John, and he actually goes into the tomb, steps into the grave, and he sees even more. He sees not just the grave cloths of the body, he sees the grave cloths surrounding the head. Again, it's possible that the way this reads, that they had collapsed in on themselves. Either way, the unmistakable evidence that something else had happened rather than the grave being robbed. And John uh, decides he's going to go in and and he, he sees everything, and then we are told he believes. But here's the thing. John believes he doesn't know why. Because John, again, who penned this for us, communicates, at this point in time, we didn't understand that the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to the resurrection of Jesus were actually pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. It's just that he sees a grave that has not been robbed, absent a body. He reflects on everything that he had seen Jesus do, and he believes, and he wonders, you know, I thought I knew who this guy was, but who is he really? Which brings us to the one that is really the focus of everything, Mary Magdalene. Who was this Mary really? Well, unfortunately, we think we know more about her than what we actually know about her. She's only mentioned 12 times in the entire Bible. Eleven of them are in connection with either the crucifixion or the resurrection. The only other time that she is mentioned in Scripture is in Luke chapter 8. And unfortunately, Pope Gregory I, 1,600 years ago, connected Mary Magdalene in the first verses of Luke chapter 8 with the sexually immoral woman who had wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. Sexually immoral woman, code in Scripture for prostitute. And so, Pope uh, Gregory says, Mary Magdalene is that prostitute. And so everyone believes that Mary Magdalene was a redeemed prostitute. That was not the case in all likelihood. But let's not pretend that she wasn't really a basket case. Because Luke chapter 8 tells us that she had been possessed by seven demons. Now, whether you believe that to be a first century understanding of mental illness or like I believe that she was actually possessed by demonic spirits, we can know without a doubt that this woman was a mess and that Jesus had given her her life back. And now, now he was gone. She wanted to do one last thing for this man who had completely changed her life. At least, the least I can do 
give them a decent burial. And I can spend some time with them, and I can get some closure. And now all of that had been taken away, and she was inconsolable. Well, Peter and John, being the gentlemen that they were, left her there by herself, completely broken hearted. She finally composes herself, and she goes into the tomb to see what they had seen, and she sees what they saw, but she sees more. She sees two men that it wasn't like in a small space Peter and John had overlooked them. The indication was they weren't there, and John tells us they were angels, but she doesn't know that they were angels, and they say to her, tell us, what is your story? Why are you inconsolable? And so she relates the story. She says, someone has taken the Lord whom I loved, my, my rabbi whom I loved, and, and I'm not going to get the closure that I was hoping and provide the gift of a decent burial. She still has no clue. Again, she, it's absurd to think that someone has, has risen from the dead. She has no clue. And, and so she, she leaves. And when she leaves, sobbing, and keep in mind, this isn't just some pretty cry. I mean, the word that is in the text lets us know that it was a big old shoulder roll and in her culture, loud wailing. She goes outside the tomb. And she sees another man. Now, John lets us in on the fact that this is actually Jesus. But she doesn't know that it's Jesus. You say, well, why doesn't she know? Well, uh, it could be that you don't really expect to talk to dead people. I mean, honestly, folks, let's, let's read it like it's being presented to us. You don't expect to talk to dead people. But you can't see very well when your eyes are filled with tears, when you're wrapped up in your grief. I mean, it's... it's she just didn't see him, and he says, what's your story? And so she tells the story again, and then he says one word. He says her name. He says her name. My uh, granddaughter, June, the most beautiful human being who's ever drawn a breath on planet Earth, next week's going to be eight months old. Unfortunately, she does not yet have a command of the English language. I mean, you can say all kinds of really cool words to her. You can say pops, she'll just look at you. You can say Santa Claus or John, either one. You can say those words, and she doesn't bat an eye. Puppy doesn't quicken her pulse. But you can be across the room, and you can say one word, June, and that little head will snap around. And she will look toward the direction where she heard the most important word in her world, her name. We reflexively respond to the sound of our name, even if we think we've heard our name. If you're in a crowd and you think you hear your name, you will stop in a crowd of strangers to see who it was that has spoken your name. Mary hears her name, and she's finally able through the tears to recognize who it is that is speaking to her. It's Jesus, and she believes. Like John, this absurd thing that is not possible, suddenly she finds herself 
believing. And again, neither had any kind of biblical framework at this point in time to understand that this was to be expected. But their understanding shifts. This is not just a human being. This is someone more. Who is this? And that's really the ball game, isn't it? I mean, if you're here hearing this, if, if what I'm saying is a fairy tale, it's no big deal. But if it's true, it's everything. It literally is everything. You can think of Jesus as Gandhi or Buddha who taught religiously and had devoted followers if he's not resurrected. But if he's resurrected, then who he is becomes a fundamental question at life, in life. And at this point, she really doesn't have an answer. She's really not processing theologically everything that's happened. Someone she thought was dead is now alive. She just falls at his feet, and she offers him a term of endearment, Raboni, and, and he says something to her that I think far too often has been communicated far more off-putting than what it means. He said, stop clinging to me. And it's frequently taught, I believe incorrectly, that there's something about the nature of his body that means that it cannot be touched at this point in time. That doesn't make any sense because later in John, uh, he asked people, touch me, touch me. He's not saying that. Simply, he's doing this. You don't have to strangle me, girl. She is gripping him. I'm not going to let you get away. I can't let you go. And he's just simply saying to her, you don't have to hang on to me. I'm not yet going back to the Father. You don't have to keep grabbing me. I'm not going anywhere. And then he says, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And with that, the beginning flickers of understanding begin to come on in Mary's eyes. She's starting to understand who this is. She is starting to understand he wasn't merely a religious teacher who pointed us in the direction of God. He is, by these words, saying that he is the one, and this is radical for her, he is the one through whom she has kinship with God. I'm going to my Father and your Father. I'm going to my God and to your God. Showing us on the pages of Scripture, it's not what you know, it's who you know. The entire religious enterprise is built on what you know. Do you know the right rituals? Do you know the right holy days? And do you know the right schedule? In other words, do you know how to pray? Do you know about Easter and Christmas? And do you know what time church starts on Sunday? Everything about the religious enterprise is built on what you know. And life becomes trying to do enough of those right things. But Jesus says it's not what you know, it's who you know. Do you know me? Do you place all of your hopes, all of your dreams, the entire direction of your life in my hand? 
hands and with wonder filling her heart and now tears of happiness filling her eyes, she goes and she tells the story and on and on and on the story has been told. People come to church on Easter Sunday for a variety of reasons. They come because of tradition. They come because of family pressure. They come because they are just kind of forced to. But there are those that come because they believe that the recently crucified body of a Jewish rabbi rose from the dead on the third morning after his execution. And to some of you, that still sounds completely absurd. But my hope this morning is to show you that the people who heard it for the first time were gripped by the same absurdity, but each reached a conclusion that they could not deny. In fact, they reached the point where they said to believe he didn't is more absurd than to believe that he is still dead. They gave their lives for this. And because it happened, it is the most important event in human history. There's nothing more significant, nor is there any more significant decision that anyone can make than what they will do about this risen Savior. And if you hear this morning, came in believing it's absurd, but are now kind of wavering a bit, wondering, well, let me just entertain that maybe it happened, and starting to kind of have a, an uh-oh moment, if it's real, I've got to revisit and reevaluate things, we want you to know we're glad you're here, and we want to help you, and I want to start that help by, by praying for you right now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.